Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. All right, thank you, hosts. You guys are amazing. We're blessed by you and the team that leads in worship here. So glad to have you here. If you're online, welcome to you as well. And uh, I hope you're excited for what God's going to show us today in His Word. I know I am, and we're grateful you're a part of this. I watch uh, a lot of YouTube. My wife would say I watch too much YouTube. And one of the channels that I enjoy watching uh, is called Fail Army. Have you ever seen any of the fail videos on your feed? Okay, here's how it goes. Fail Army, it's, it's cataloging times when people do foolish things. Right? So it's the person who walks down the icy steps and then they bite it. Or the person who takes their BMX bike off the jump and then they, they bite it. It's the person who's walking their large dog behind a leash and this rabbit darts in front of them and then they bite it. Right? Maybe you're seeing a theme here. Uh, it's that your pastor has a twisted sense of humor. <laughs> right? But I often wonder, like this, the, uh, people are like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, uh, I'll pull a wheelie on my sport bike. It'll make me look good with all of the ladies. And then when they completely bite it, there's this moment afterwards where they're going, wow, I didn't make this connection. Uh, in fact, I have kind of a bite it moment here a little bit this weekend. I was staining a guitar. I wore vinyl gloves. It's this leather dye. And I, I get done. I take off the vinyl gloves and my fingertips look like I have frostbite from this brown dye. And so I felt a little bit like, well, that didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to turn out. As a parent of teenagers, I, I actually really like watching that show. I like watching that channel because it's like this case study and like natural consequences that'll happen. I know you think it's a good idea to like do this thing with your bike, but this is how it's going to turn out in your life. And it's really showing that there's this mindset, there's this foolishness that happens when they disconnect what are going to be the consequences from their actions or act in a disconnected way in their world. That kind of disconnection, I, actually, I really like that thought when it comes to what is foolishness. Because you're foolish if you think, you know, I'm just going to go speed a little bit. At, at, the, at the worst, you know, at the best, it might end up with a speeding ticket. At the worst, it might end up you're in the hospital. We can all be fools when we disconnect our lives. So this is what I mean by that. If we disconnect our health from our eating habits, that's actually really, really foolish. If we think, I'm independent from you, hear me roar, that's actually, that's actually really foolish because it's much wiser to recognize our interconnectedness. In fact, that's one of the things I've been saying to my kids is they're now teenagers. I'm saying the quicker you can recognize your interconnectedness and your interdependence, the better off your life will be because they're in a phase where they say, oh, I'm going to have all the autonomy in the world. It's like, no, you need to recognize that you need other people. The sooner you recognize your actions impact other people, the sooner that you make these connections in your life, the better off your life will be. And the truth is, as I think about my children, and I'm a little further down the road than they are, so I'm thinking about all the foolish things I've done in my life, and I'm just wanting to save them some of that heartache and that agony from disconnecting things in your life. But don't you know, and you guys know this, that as adults, we can be just as quick to do foolish things? Isn't that true? And when we do that, 
our lives can look as ridiculous <laughs> as some of those fail videos that come across our feeds so often. But more about that in just a moment. We're in a series called Losing My Religion. Religion is, in one sense, how we understand the, the, the cause and the nature and the purpose of the universe, like in a broad sense, but it also is how we understand that we're good with ourselves, how we're good with other people, and ultimately how we're good with God. And every major world religion would say that we are made right with God by my efforts. That would be things like you know, my language, uh, how I treat other people, how I deal with my money, how, how good I behave. Every major world religion makes it all about your level of performance, but Christianity actually is, makes it all about God's effort to get to us, not our effort to get to God, but his effort to get to us. And we said in week number one that if we're gonna find our faith, it's actually gonna require that we learn to lose our religion. This series is a study in the, the letter the Apostle Paul wrote to some Christians in the region of Galatia, the book of Galatians. Because there's something happening within the natural rhythms of the human heart that, that causes us to lean on our behavior, to lean on our record, to lean on how well we do life, how well we have it all together. Are we better than the next person? Because we would all say, you know, when I stand before God, you know, I'm not that bad, and I'm talking about kind of someone else. I'm better than they are. And so it becomes about, you know, how much we kind of, how much good we have lumped on our side of the scale. And there's something inside the human heart that I think we just keep drawing ourselves back into that. I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in the lives of the people that I interact with. And that's what was happening to these early Christians in Galatia. And this is something that we, we all do. And, and, and this shows up in many different ways. It can be like, how do, I, how do I impact the environment? You know, And I don't want to impact the environment, so I've got to have not only like an electric car, but I have to like buy and purchase the offset credits that would like neutralize the environmental impact. And I need to be a good enough person. And I need to, I need to like deal, like support the oppressed enough. And am I doing that enough? And, 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 and am I standing against governments that might oppress other people? And so we create these ways in our culture that we say, hey, we're a, a good person. And I think that there's something inside the heart of every person that keeps driving back to that. They're a good person. <laughs> I even think about, you'd see someone who gets caught for like some sort of heinous crime and they interview their mom or their grandma or whatever and they'll be like, well, he's a good boy. He's a good kid. And I'm like, then what on earth does that even mean at that point in time? Trying to qualify our goodness. As Paul starts writing to these Christians in the beginning of Galatians, he, he's not shy about his language with them. He says, I am astonished. I'm shocked that you have so quickly left this fundamental truth about, the, about Christianity, about the gospel, about who you are before God, that it comes not from your effort, but from God's effort. And he says that you've actually, you've, you've twisted it, you've distorted it, you've actually reversed the gospel. The gospel is God's effort to get to us, but you've reversed it 
by making it about your, your actions. And instead of, of being set free from religion that says, hey, I've got to earn it, and Jesus said, no, you don't have to earn it anymore, they've left that and they've gone back to religion. See, they didn't go to sinful behavior. That's what I would expect Paul to write. And he says that to the Corinthians, by the way. Hey, you're, you're, you're out of alignment with your behavior. Right? But what he says to the Galatians is not, hey, you're so sinful. It's that you're forgetting the foundation of what Christianity means in the first place. So a word that Paul introduced that we studied last week is this, is this idea of justification. He says, you're justified by faith, and then, but they twisted it and they made it all depend on them. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna look at kind of this next segment in the book of Galatians. Um, we're gonna then go back into the Old Testament to help us better understand this passage in Galatians. And then I wanna peel it forward to today in our own hearts, okay? So we're gonna look at Galatians, Genesis, and then we're gonna come into where we are today. So turn in your, your Bibles to Galatians chapter three. If you have an orange Bible or wanna use an orange Bible, it's gonna be page 796. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love for you to just take one of these. It's so important to be in God's word. Um, we love buying more Bibles because we run out of them. It's a great thing. And here's what Paul says to these Galatians. Again, listen to his language, man. He is, he is sharp-tongued in, in this book. He says, you foolish Galatians. Patrick, would you pull the gain down just a little bit uh, on this? Thank you, friend. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You foolish Galatians, you're disconnecting something that's true that you know about and yet you're acting like it's something that it's not. You're missing this. Who's bewitched you? Who's deceived you and twisted you? He says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. What is the foundation of your faith? It's not your ability to follow the rules. It's what Jesus did. He died on the cross. He was risen again. It's what Jesus Christ did. He says this, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law? In other words, when, when, um, when someone repents of their sin when they're born again. It says that the Holy Spirit of God resides, makes their dwelling in the, in the life of the believer. Our bodies become a temple of the Holy Spirit and we experience his joy and his comfort and his empowerment to be able to overcome sin, to be assured of his love for us. All of those things are true and they experienced it. And he's asking the question, did you receive that because of the law, the law of Moses, the Torah, the all the hundreds of commandments about what you can eat and these, ho these holidays you're supposed to take and, and you, know, you can't be around these kinds of people because they're unclean people. Is that the method that you received the Spirit? That's what he asks them. Or is it because you believed? You believed in what you have heard. Last week, that word justification we, we, Paul used it for the first time, and it's really this important term for us to understand, certainly for this book, but for our, just our Christian walk and our relationship with God. He says that we're justified. Now, when you hear the word justified, you can just put this in your head. It's just as if I had never sinned. When I'm justified, it's just as if I had never sinned. Doesn't mean I didn't sin. It means that when God looks at me, there's a legal declaration. Here's what it means. Justification is the act of God where he declares the believing sinner righteous 
in Jesus. Just as if I had never sinned. A legal declaration because of what God has done. Paul says that we're justified by faith. That's what does it. That's the start. And so this is what Paul does to kind of uh, go at these Galatian Christians. And here's what these Galatians were Christians were doing. We've talked about this past week. They would say in order to be a Christian, Jesus is not enough. You actually need to follow the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow dietary restrictions, all of that kind of stuff. So what Paul does is he builds an argument for them. He says in verse 5, So again I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Or by believing what you have heard. And then what he does is he goes back to the foundation of the Jewish faith. That is the person of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He's also, by the way, the father of the Islamic nation. One of his offspring kind of became the Islamic nation. The foundation of so much that happens over there in the Middle East. Abraham, he says, so Abraham, verse 6, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He rolls back to the patriarch of their faith that came before Moses was ever around, before the law of Moses ever came to be, before the Torah was ever written. He talks about Abraham. Why does he do this? Because he's going to establish that Abraham was never made right by a law that came after him in the first place. In other words, Abraham was made right not by what he achieved, but by what he had received. So in order, in order to really understand this passage, and I think that there's some meaning that's even deeper if we, if we go back into Genesis and, and read about how God put this call, this blessing on Abraham's life, and how God entered a covenant with Abraham, and I think what we see is something that's so much, that brings so much richness to it. And so go, go with me here for a moment. It'll be on the screen if you want to hang out there too, but it's in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, it's kind of the start of the whole story of Abraham. At that point in time, he was called Abram. So if you see Abram, same thing as Abraham. God gives him a new name a little bit later. But this is what happens. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Okay, do you hear what he's saying? You're going to be, you're going to have a lot of offsprings. I'm going to give you a land and, and you're going to be a blessing to other people and I'm going to bless you. How would you like to have God show up and give you that kind of promise? That'd be a great thing. That's what God did with Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and will curse those uh, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all, now listen, and all the people's of the earth will be blessed through you. This is what theologically is called the Abrahamic covenant. Here's what was happening. Sin entered the world. We're all condemned under sin. We all deal with frustrations and pollution and treating people poorly and, and just dealing with the fallout of all of the yuck of our humanity. And God says, but I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to redeem creation. God says, I'm going to make you my holy nation, Abraham, and all the people will be redeemed because of you. To quote J.R.R. Tolkien, all that is sad is going to come untrue. And it starts with this promise that God makes to Abraham. But the problem, the problem is that Abraham doesn't have any kids. And he's old. And his wife is old. 
And as much as they love to hang out and make out together, no children are going to come because they're that old. And Abraham kind of objects about this. We're past our prime, but God does this in Genesis 15. He, God takes him outside and says, Abraham, I want you to look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. He says, so shall your offspring be. This land is going to be your land. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have more kids than you can even count. That's what your lineage is going to be. This next verse says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That one phrase caused all of the Protestant Reformation, recognizing that it's not from our works, but it's actually from our belief. What made him righteous? Was it the law of Moses? No, that wasn't even around at this point in time. It was simply saying, God, you've given me a promise. You've said you're going to be my provision, and I'm going to believe you in that. Listen, all of us are going to be up against that kind of decision as well. You're going to be at that place where you're going to be tempted to cut that corner, and you're going to have to answer the question, am I going to believe God's promise that he's never going to leave me nor forsake me. He's not going to let his righteous ones go without. Am I going to trust that or am I going to try to do things my way? Every, every single one of us are going to deal with that probably even today. Am I going to trust God's promise of his provision? And then something happens that's really strange in Genesis 15. See, God steps into a covenant with Abraham. And when you read this, it sounds so weird. Because here's what, here's what happens. He enters into a covenant with Abraham. Now, real quickly, a contract and a covenant are not the same thing. If I enter into a contract with someone, what I'm doing is I'm saying, hey, we want to have a certain kind of relationship, but I'm worried that you're going to take advantage of me. So I'm going to defend my own interests by making sure I write down what I'm expecting. And if you don't follow this through, then, you know, you're going to have all the weight of the, of the law come down upon you, right? That's what a contract is. A covenant is very different than that. A covenant is saying, I want to be in a relationship with you, and here's what I'm committing to do for your benefit and not my own. And, and me fulfilling this covenant has nothing to do with your behavior. I'm just expressing my heart's desire and my promise to you. That's, that's why we call it a marriage covenant and not a marriage contract. A covenant is all about I'm going to represent your best interests. And God enters into this covenant with Abraham. And you can imagine why. Abraham's like, but I'm old. And I don't know how I'm going to have kids. And God says, no, listen, this, I mean it. And I want you to believe it. And so he asks Abraham to gather some animals. Back in these ancient cultures, when they would have a, a, a royal land treaty between perhaps two uh, you know, influential leaders of a city-state and they're dealing with land treaties, what they would do is they would take two animals uh, you know, influential and they would leaders cut them of a city-state and they're dealing with land treaties. gory. And I mean, we eat animals. That just all happens at a factory somewhere. So they, they regularly had to butcher their own animals. It wasn't a big deal for them. And they would take these animals and they would cut them in half and they would place them apart from each other and the both parties would walk through the middle of these two animals as a way of saying, I see the, 
I see the blood and there's these rendered bodies and it's smelly and it's hot outside and this was quite an ordeal. And basically what they're saying is this. They're saying, if I don't fulfill my end of this covenant, may it be to me like what happened to these animals. And that's how they would fulfill a land contract. But I want you to see what happens here as God enters this covenant with Abram. Abraham prepares these animals, and then it says this. It says that God puts Abraham into this deep, deep sleep. It says this in Genesis 15, 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared, which always in the Old Testament, the smoke and the fire always represented the Spirit of God present, powerful, active there. It says, uh, the, the smoking fire pot, a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Where was Abraham? He was asleep. Did Abraham pass through animal pieces? Who did? God did. Who entered the covenant? God did. This was the blood covenant that God alone passed through. Now listen, nothing depended on Abraham. Everything depended on God who promised to be faithful to his covenant. And by entering this covenant, this was the sense when God was saying, listen, if I don't keep my word, may it happen to me like it happened to these animals. He put his deity on the line as a confirmation to Abraham that I will fulfill my promise to you Abraham, you can trust in me. One uh, commentator said this, that a, a divine covenant is not a mutual agreement on equal terms between two parties, but a divine promise assured. God alone signed this covenant, and Abraham didn't have to haggle over the details of it. God established it, and Abraham accepted it. Abraham could never break the contract or the covenant that he never signed. Listen to me. All he had to do was receive it. It's all he had to do. And this is what Paul is referring back to and this Galatian audience that was these Jewish believers, in their mind, this would have been a part of their cultural loading and understanding about who Abraham was. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that a saving faith is believing in the promises and the provisions of God. It's more than, listen to me, it's more than just believing, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Listen, even the demons believe in Jesus. And they shudder, the New Testament says. That doesn't mean that they put their trust in Jesus. That doesn't mean that they're trusting the promise of God. A saving faith is trusting in God's promise and not our performance. It's trusting in God when God says, listen, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you because, listen, my son was rendered and his blood was shed. And I am faithful to this promise. You put your faith in him and I guarantee that you're going to get to be with me for eternity. Abraham just had to receive it. He had to believe it. That God was faithful with his promises. And that's the same thing that applies for us. A saving faith is believing in the gospel promise and his provision and not through our performance. One of the things that I find so helpful is an illustration. I've used this in the past couple weeks. The illustration of someone drowning. If I'm drowning 
It's because I don't know how to swim. And if I just try to work harder, if I just try to move my arms more, I'm just going to drown all the faster. But when I recognize that in Christ, God has thrown me a rope, and all I have to do, my only hope is acknowledging, not that I've got this, I'm going I'm to make it, you know, this, the rescue boat is there, you're in the middle of the ocean, you're drowning, you're like, no thanks, I'm good. All I have to do is receive the rope and cling on to it. I have to receive it. Now listen, when that boat shows up and you're drowning in the middle of the ocean, that boat showing up is the best news that you could possibly ever have. And listen, news is not something you achieve, it's something that you receive. News is not something you achieve, it's something that you receive. And your relationship with God is based on the boat and the rope doing all of the work. And all you have to do is receive it. So you could imagine Paul, who knew these Christian believers, who had a genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ, and now all of a sudden they're reverting back to thinking I'm going to figure out how to swim in the ocean on my own. This is as foolish, this is as disconnected as, as to press this drowning illustration a little further, imagine that they had received the rope of salvation while they were drowning and God saved them and they're out of the water, they're on the boat and you know what they do? They jump back in the water again. And they start trying to swim even though they don't know. It's okay, I got it. I've learned some things. No, you haven't. You're, you're, as, you're foolish for doing this. This is why he uses that language. You've disconnected what saved you from what sustains you. He says this, verse 3 of Galatians. That's where we're back, okay? We're back in Galatians. He says, are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, after believing in faith, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? What is the means of the flesh? Flesh is a Greek word that's sarks, and here's what it means. It means self-effort means I've got this. It means I'm smart enough. It means I can manage the consequences well enough. It means I, I, I can be a good enough person. After beginning by faith, you're now trying to finish by the flesh. Do you see why they, he calls them foolish? They've disconnected it altogether. How can you be such a fool, he said, that you've disconnected and and what was only God's grace that saves you, but now you're turning to something else. You're turning to something else to find your significance and your meaning. Because they would say, I believe in Jesus, but I am a good, law-observing Jew, and you should be too. And the only way you get to come be with Jesus is if you get circumcised and follow all the diets and never eat pork or shrimp, so bacon-wrapped shrimp is out of the equation. <laughs> That's, that's what they were doing. They were going back to that. Last week when we had baptism, every time I baptize somebody, here's what I ask them. I ask them, are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? Not just did you trust him when you were 11. Not just did you pray a prayer when you were at church camp. Not just did your parents like dedicate you at church. Not just did this happen a couple years ago. But are you ongoingly trusting in Jesus alone for salvation? Is that true about you? 
I ask them that every single time. Now listen, I wanna be very clear about something. This is not getting saved over and over and over again. I did that when I was like six, right? I accepted Jesus when I was like five, and then I'm like, I sinned again, I need to pray and, and be saved all over again and all over again. No, 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 Jesus' blood forgives you once and forever. You don't getting saved over and over again, but it is an ongoing trusting. It's not just a one time, I've done it once, but it's, a, it's real to me, it's actual, it's here. Do I still trust him and do I still treasure him? That's why Paul is saying, he's saying, why did you begin in that and yet you're trying to persevere in this? Here's what he's saying. He's saying the faith that saves you is the same faith that sanctifies you. This is where good theology is really, really important. Because the Bible says when you're born, you're an enemy of God, you're lost, you're in rebellion. When you become a Christian, you get saved. You get saved from what? You get saved from separation from God and a life without him in hell. And and you get saved from your sins. When all of that happens, you're being born again, you're experiencing salvation. And every Christian comes only through Jesus Christ. But once you're sanctified, excuse me, once you're a Christian, You live a life that is marked by this process called sanctification. And here's what it means. Sanctification is a word that means like this this process of always becoming more and more like Jesus. It's learning to say no to, to those things that always pull me back down into the pit and say yes to the things that pull me out of it. it it's, it's, it's this washing that happens and it's, it happens all throughout my life. Until I die to go be with God, I'm gonna be constantly being sanctified. And here's the problem the Galatians had. I get saved by, by faith, but I get sanctified by my own works. I've, I've gotta pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And Paul is saying, no, no, listen. The same safe faith that saves you, sanctifies you. 100%, it's always Jesus. It's always Jesus. And you're a fool to think that it's separated out. That's, that's what these, that's what these uh, Galatian Christians were doing. Is they were saying, I, I know there's Jesus, but I have something else in my life that I'm actually going to prop myself up against. Something else that's going to be my source of completeness. Because that was great. Jesus was cute. The law is everything. But I wonder how much... Um, I wonder how much we, we do this too. Like, I, yeah, I believe it's Jesus, but I also need to have these other things that are in my life to really be happy and whole and complete and have joy. This is something that the, um, some of the church fathers called having a functional savior. A functional savior. Something we're always drawn to. A functional savior means that we might begin with Jesus, but now something else has become our functional savior. Instead of believing that it's Christ only, now I'm going to look to something else to be my hope, to make me feel good, to make me feel complete. A functional savior is something that we feel like we can't live without. It keeps us up at night, it shapes our behavior, it, it, it shapes our friend groups, it shapes our, it's like a rudder for how we spend our money and how we spend our time. It's how we, it's like what we talk about. Uh, even when we're outside of work, we're still thinking about it. So I, I just wanna ask a few questions and maybe in this space we can each have these rumblings in our own soul where we can ask the question, what might my functional savior be? And I just wanna ask some questions of you and. 
invite you into this process here. Here's the first one. What one thing do you most hope is in your future? What one thing do you most hope is in your future? So I've got like my laser-like focus that this degree, getting into this program, starting that career, it's going to be my ticket, um, you know, to, to... to have provision for myself, to be significant because, well, my brother was a doctor, I've got to be a doctor too, or they were in the military, that's my family's thing, I'm going to be in the, so I, I've got to work hard, I've got to get into the army academy, and then if I can do that, I'm going to be set. What is the thing you most hope is in your future? Question two, what is the one thing you most worry about losing? You know, you were betrayed once by a friend, losing that person hurts so much, or losing that family member when they died hurts so much, and now that's the thing that you most worry about in your life. And if I have friends, if I have family, I'm good, but if I don't have enough friends, or they, you know, they start to maybe pull away a little bit all of a sudden, it's like I can't lose that. What do you most worry about losing? How about this one? If you could change one thing about yourself right now, what would it be? could change one thing. Maybe it's looking a particular way, fitting into a certain dress size. My image, how I look, has become my functional savior. How about this? What thing have you most sacrificed for? Maybe it's the vacation home or the jet ski. I've sacrificed for that. And listen, when things like that become our functional saviors, when someone gets in the way of that, when something comes for that, when someone damages that, all of a sudden, like, you find yourself really bristly because they're rubbing up against your functional savior. And the thought of someone taking that away is unbelievable. How about this one? Who is it in your life that you feel like you just can't forgive? And why? Not, it's hard to forgive, but I won't forgive. And why? I, I actually think, I actually think this is a really deep question. Because I think what you'd find is that your bitterness, the the things that you're not willing to forgive, is always going to be tied to your functional savior. I can't forgive them, I won't forgive them because of, and you fill in the blank. Follow your bitterness. Next question, when do you feel the most significant? Is it when people appreciate you because of your contribution or how helpful you are? Maybe your functional savior is the applause of men. How about what triggers depression in you? What triggers depression in you? You know, my functional savior was having my career because I didn't want to be like my mom. She was miserable all the time and now... I got to stay home all the time with our 2.5 kids, and now I'm going to be just like my mom. So your career becomes a functional savior for you, and that's the thing that triggers depression. How about this one? Where do you turn for comfort when things aren't going well? Maybe it's like, as long as my 401k is okay, as long as we have this much in our bank account, that's my functional Savior. I'll be able to weather it. I'm just going to keep gritting through work because eventually I'll be able to retire and then I don't have to mess with this junk no more. That's your functional savior. Here's a big one. This is, this is my wife's question. I thought it was good. 
where do you struggle with bitterness towards God about? Where do you struggle with bitterness towards God about? You never got pregnant. And your sister has a bunch of kids in the life that you always wanted and that was not what was true for you. And you just go, God, I prayed and prayed and prayed and you never gave me what I wanted. Maybe that family, that family image, that lifestyle was your functional savior. Maybe it was this physical affliction and I didn't plan on having to deal with this the rest of my life and now I don't even know that I'm gonna be able to enjoy my grandkids the way that I wanted to or you know what, I prayed and prayed and prayed God that you'd heal my spouse but my spouse died and I wasn't planning on living out the rest of my days single. I was gonna, I was gonna retire down to Florida, we were gonna walk on the beach and hold hands and now I'm by myself. And that, that was my functional Savior. I think we all have a functional Savior. I think we all have that. We say we believe in Christ alone, but we turn to these things, and I would say to you that those things for us are going to be idols. Idols, anything that takes the place of God in our lives, it becomes the most weighty thing. And here's the thing about our idols that makes them so very tricky is they're not necessarily bad things. It's not just like, hey, I really just want to get drunk and party all weekend. Sometimes it's really good things. When good things become the most ultimate things, they become bad things for us. Timothy Keller says this. He says that an idol is behind our loftiest dreams, our scariest nightmares, and our most unyielding emotions. So what is it for you? What is your functional savior? This week I was kind of unpacking this in my own heart with my bride and kind of doing some self-psychoanalysis of what are the things I've run up against, behaviors in my own life, sin issues in my own life, and what might that functional savior be behind all of those things. And here are some of the things that came to my mind and heart. The first thing is worry. What am I worried about? What keeps me up? Well, this church does. Church keeps me up at night. I'm worried about how we're going to care for the people that we have and the more people that come. How are we going to care for them? How are we going to navigate certain challenges or financial situations? And what about the ones that aren't even there yet? And most of that worry stems from this fear that I, listen, that I'm not going to be the success that I want to be. Not, not that the church, that I'm not going to, that I'm going to fail that somehow I'm going to be a laughing stock. Why do I need to be successful? Well, it's because I want to be admired by people. I can also get angry. I, I get angry if I feel like I'm losing an argument or someone makes me look stupid. It's because I need people to, to admire me and being right is a, <laughs> or having competency is a key component in that. Or how about being deceptive or lying? That's a temptation for me comes from this need to cover up my shortcomings or maybe exaggerate my accomplishments. Why do I do that? You know the answer. I lie to keep other people happy because I don't want them to be disappointed in me. I don't want to let people down. So the approval of other people has become my functional savior. And the promise and the provision of God has become not enough for me. And I need something 
else. And you would look at me and you would say, Scott, you are one sick dude. And I would say, I am. But so are you guys. Because you have the same kinds of problems. I'm just brave enough to say it out loud. But maybe, just maybe, the reason that I'm brave enough to say that is because I think I'm being so honest that will make you admire me for my transparency. You see the problem? And for any of these things, you would just say, well, hey, Scott, knock it off. Stop being angry. You shall not lie. The problem is my heart so craves this approval that these sins come as instinctively as breathing. And my insecurity makes me fearful and it makes me short-tempered. It makes me want to bend the truth for my own personal advantage. And even if I could discipline myself not to get worried or angry or lie, I really wouldn't be covering up, I would only be covering up the real problem that I delight more in the approval of other people than the approval of God because I'm depraved and I'm an idolater. And listen, all of the commands, all of the laws, don't worry, don't lie, don't, all of that doesn't actually give me the power to deal with these functional saviors and these idols that I actually have in my life. What religion is unable to do, listen, God does for us in Christ. God does for us with the gospel. The gospel shows me a God who is better than the approval of others and a God who is more valuable and faithful than the, than the applause of man. The gospel shows me that God's presence and his approval are the greatest treasure in the universe. And the gospel shows me that God's mercy to me means that I can be merciful with other people. And the fact that when I feel like I'm under the weight of my own sin, Christ looks at me and says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I can say, if God can forgive me, it means that I can forgive other people that have even tarnished my image or made me look bad or made me feel insignificant. If the gospel did that for me, then I can do that for other people. And none of that is so that I gain God's acceptance. It's because I have his acceptance that I can stare into the depravity of my own ugly, twisted, depraved, functional savior kind of heart. And I don't have to have a crisis because I can say God's promise and his provision have nothing to do with me. He's walked through. His body was rendered. And I have approval before God. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why do you think that you can be changed and sanctified without the grace and the gospel of God in your heart? Don't twist it. Don't pervert it. The same grace that saves us, sanctifies us. So here's what I want to do. This is actually something that we've used in the past, but I think it's pretty awesome. Would you help me, Lori? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Jennifer, would you help maybe hand those out on the other side? This is a, uh, a gospel prayer, and this is just something you can throw in your car. These are meant to be business card size, but we upgraded a little bit. Um, you can put it on your fridge, too. And this is a gospel prayer we've used before, but I think it's powerful, and I want to put it back in front of us. Okay, like, when you feel the functional Savior starting to hit you, that, that you, you would... Pray this prayer and bring it to mind. And this is what it says. It says, in Christ, there's nothing I can do that would make 
you love me more and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Your presence and approval are all that I need for everlasting joy. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. As I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. Let's pray together. God, this is the prayer that we offer up before you in worship and in response. God, we um, need to be reminded daily about the gospel in us and for us and through us and to us. In Christ, there's nothing I can do that would make you love us more. Nothing I have done that would make you love me less. Your presence and approval are all that I need for everlasting joy. Oh God, forgive us of wandering to functional saviors that will only ever fail us. And the approval and the faithfulness of the applause of men is such a horrible foundation. (coughs) It is faulty. And that spouse that said they would never leave us nor forsake us is fallen and will fail us. But you, God, are faithful and you are true. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. The only power we have to forgive is because you've forgiven us. The only power we have to step into being made more and more like Jesus is the very grace that saves us. Let us measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Another way that we want to respond is through observing the bread and the cup. Here to my left, your right. And there are two elements here, the bread and then just some grape juice. Nothing about this. Um, This is just grape juice and it's just bread. What we're doing is we're symbolically taking that to be reminded of the compassion and the power that Jesus showed on the cross. This is what... um, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us this is Paul's instructions to Christians about what this means and why we do this he says for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and then when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come back, is what he says. So as we step into this next moment here, um, I just want to invite you to, uh, to take this and to return back to your seat. And then as we worship, whenever you feel like the time's right for you, that you would just in in observation of what Christ has done, partake of those elements. God, thanks for what you've done. We give you praise and thanks for what Jesus did on our behalf so that we don't have to be broken, so our blood doesn't have to be spilled. You're gracious and true. We put our faith in you. We pray this in Christ's name.